Our second reading is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him joyfully, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? The word of the Lord. At Christ Church Vienna, we talk about our vision and values to be a gospel driven, externally focused, extended family Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia. Often in our sermon series, we focused on one aspect of our vision and values. A few weeks uh, during the summer, sorry, we looked at being a gospel-driven people and a gospel-driven church. In September and October, we were in 1 Corinthians talking about being an extended family, especially in a community and a culture of individual and transient lives. We want to be lives together, committed to one another. And over the past month, we talked about place which was really a way of talking about being for Vienna or for whatever place God has put us. Over the next month, we're not going to be talking about Anglicanism, but we're going to be practicing it. That's really how we've done this at Christ Church Vienna. We haven't done didactic teaching times. I know many of you come from traditions other than Anglicanism. We simply practice it. You see that in the prayers that we read or recite that are hundreds of years old, that we do communion every week and the way that we do it, the, the I'm wearing this funny collar. Some of these things we do are a part of just practicing Anglicanism. And one way that we're going to add to that during the season of Advent and Christmas is by guiding our scripture readings from the common lectionary. The lectionary is, um, is actually an ordered readings for, uh, that go through all of the Bible in a three-year period. If you look over the coming month, you can see the scripture readings that are set out. And the way this works is if you were in a liturgical tradition, a traditional church, the Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican, Presbyterian, sometimes Methodist, they will often use the common lectionary. And the common lectionary goes through a psalm, 
an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, and a gospel reading every week, every Sunday, and over the course of three years, it repeats itself. The intention, the aim behind this is to go through whole large portions of the Bible in three years. And the history, the history dates back to an era when people were illiterate. And the idea was if you were illiterate in the 1500s, 1600s, but you had a common lectionary, over the course of your lifetime, you would hear these basic stories told and retold over and over again so that you would understand them and they would sink in. And that's part of the reason why we also do seasons in churches. This is the season of Christmas time if you're at Tyson's Mall, but it's the season of Advent if you're in the church. And they get confused a little bit because, look, we put up our Christmas trees. I've been singing Christmas carols and having them playing in the office for about a month already. I think it might be one of the reasons Matt left. (laughs) But I anticipate Christmas with the joy of a kid sometimes still. But during the season of Advent, which is really the season we're in, it's meant to be a season longing for and looking for the coming of Christ. And the seasons of the year were put in place at a time when people were illiterate, again, so that they would have the full aspects and all the pieces of God's redemptive purposes laid out for them in Scripture and in colors and in action, and they would get it. Well, we're past that, but we still reenact these things as a way of walking through the paces of being a church of people that need to hear the story again and again and again. And so we enter the season of Advent, and we'll be guiding our scriptures that way. The season of Advent, as we said at the beginning, the the word Advent means coming or arrival. And it's a season where we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. The prayer is not for Christmas to come, although as a kid, that was my prayer. The prayer is for God to come and judge and reign to bring his kingdom, and to right all wrongs. And as a result of that, the readings and the prayers and even the songs focus on longing, longing for God to come. Repentance, recognizing that we are sinful, and readiness, being awake and alert and hopeful, anticipating the coming of the Lord. And we get all of these in Isaiah 64. We get this sense of longing, of repentance, And of are we ready? And so I'm going to go ahead and jump right into this. In Isaiah 64, a very Adventy passage that is given to us, longing for the Lord to come. Isaiah writes, Oh, that you would come down, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. The setting for this prophecy is Israel is in exile or returning from exile. Exile was basically like Red Dawn, the movie had happened. The Israelites had been vanquished and obliterated. The cities had been destroyed. The temple was flattened and all the people taken away. And as they're coming to return back, they see a land that is completely stripped bare. Most of the people are dead. The buildings, the city, the walls have been flattened. And Isaiah looks around and says, Lord, where are you? Would you come? And the words that we have in here include some very clear motifs of the Lord's coming. That that phrase, the phrase, the rend the heavens, or the mountains quaking, or fire, are all visual motifs of the Lord's coming. When the Lord comes, these sorts of things happen. 
And that's Isaiah's prayer. Lord, we need you to come. Look at this land. Look at us as a people. We're a mess. Come. And what he's looking for God to do is actually to come and act with mighty actions, to arrive with saving actions. And the hint of what he's talking about is that you would come and make yourself known to the nations, and you would do so in a very mighty way. Well, when did the Lord do that? It's in the story of the Exodus. And that's what Isaiah is looking back to. He's looking back to that time when God showed up. The people were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. The Lord came and brought judgment on the slaveholders, the Egyptians. He delivered Israel through the parting of the sea. And he met them on Mount Sinai in a very visible fire and gave them the covenants and established his kingdom with them. So he wants, Isaiah is saying, let's do that again, God. Remember what you did at the Exodus? Do that again. His longing is for justice and salvation, for God to act and arrive again. But there's a problem, and Isaiah realizes this. The problem is, he says, we have sinned. You see this in the second half of verse 5. The second half of verse 5, we read, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? breaking apart the confusing language the way the Hebrew is written here. Isaiah says, I want you to come and save us. But why will you come? We are sinners. How is it that you're going to come and save us when we are so broken and fallen and apart from you? Why would you come for us, Lord? And so Isaiah is holding these two things in tension. One, he needs the Lord to come, but he wonders how to deal with the nation's sin. Doesn't seem like God can come and save a people that are so sinful. And so this morning in the first uh, series in Advent, we look at the happy topic of sin. And, And Isaiah jumps right into it. He says, this is the issue, Lord. We want you to come, but we are sinful. And we read, if we read the rest of this section, the end of verse 5 through 7, he says, Behold, you were angry and we sinned, and in our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So the problem is this. Isaiah lays it out very clearly. It's a very biblical truth. God, the creator, judge, is holy. And he is angry at sin. Now when I say that phrase, we need to think of something that we actually do ourselves. It is righteous indignation in the sense that wrongs need to be righted. The Lord's anger at sin is righteous indignation. You and I feel the same thing. We have a sense of justice and fairness. When we see a kid bullying another kid, or we read something in a Rolling Stone magazine about horrible travesties being perpetrated on somebody, we get angry. This shouldn't happen. Where does that sense of justice and right come from? It's from the image of God in us that knows that something isn't right. But the only one who can truly be judged is the creator who sees our sin and our wrong and has an indignant anger at what is wrong with this world. 
at our brokenness and our sin. Isaiah makes it clear, everyone has sinned, and he's including himself. We are unclean and polluted, he says in verse 6. In verse 7, no one calls upon your name, Lord. We are all sinful through and through. And so what has the Lord done? The second half of verse 7, you can read this. The second half of verse 7, he says, For you have hidden your face from us. You have hidden your face from us. You know, that's a sense of what judgment is. Sometimes judgment is bound up in words like fire and cleansing. But another way that we see judgment throughout the Bible is God removing his presence from us. Or another way of putting it is God giving us over to our heart's desires. In Romans 1, Paul lays out the course of human sin. And he says it like this. He says, we, we have all been given over to our heart's desires. We all know God, but choose to reject him. And so the Lord gives us over. The wrath of God is actually being given over to what your natural desire is. When your natural desire is to turn from God. So he says, go ahead. Go the way you want to go. And the Lord removes himself from us. Pulling back. C.S. Lewis put it very clearly as he often does in The Great Divorce there are only two kinds of people in the end those who say to God thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end thy will be done he goes on to say the door to hell is locked from the inside You know, sin, we tend to think of it as moral goods or bads. That's a part of it. But at its root, sin is primarily a relationship with God issue. Because sin at its root is when we turn from God, when we live on our own apart from God, when we live as if we do not need God. That's the fundamental starting place of sin. And Isaiah 64 is a lament with longing. He says, come, Lord, but you need to deal with our sin. How do we tend to deal with our sin? You know, as I was thinking about this whole passage and this topic this week, I was thinking through what are the different ways that we as people deal with sin? Isaiah's there questioning, how is God going to deal with our sin? How is he going to save because of our sin? It gets in the way of his arriving in presence. And I thought, there's a lot of ways that we as humans, maybe not all of us in here do these things, but a lot of ways we deal with our own sin issues. One of the things that we do is we dismiss our sin as not sin. This is actually our culture's knee-jerk reaction to sin. Because we live in cultural relativism, which says there is no such thing as absolute truth. Therefore, there's not really anything sinful. Each person can do what they want. And I guess that really makes each of us a God who gets to determine right and wrong. That's how our culture is set up. In fact, there's really only two sins in our culture today. One is to say someone else is wrong. And secondly, it's to trample on another person's freedom. In other words, anything goes so long as it's consensual. First thing we do is dismiss our sin as not sin. I can do what I want. Who are you or who's this God to tell me what to do? The second thing we do, and probably many of us are guilty of this one, is we minimize the offense of our sin. And the primary way we do this is by comparison, right? 
I, I tend to, we, we tend to do this, I'm not as bad as, and then we have somebody in mind, our brother-in-law, our next-door neighbor, that guy in the newspaper. I'm not as bad as, and really we're trying to evaluate ourselves on the basis of this question, am I a good guy? And if I can measure up with the median, and I'm roughly equal to most of you, I feel okay about myself. And so I minimize the offense and seriousness of my sins as foibles or some you know, personality challenges that I need to get over. We also see the minimizing of our sin when we have indignation towards certain sins and they're not ours. You actually see this in most families. It's one spouse's indignation towards the other's sin, a parent's towards their kids, kids towards their parents. You see something that, that she does. And that's really what's wrong with this world. I can remember looking back on my high school days, having a deep anger at gossip and jealousy. I used to get so angry when, when friends of mine were gossiping or jealous. Why? Because it wasn't an issue for me. And I couldn't believe that they would sink that low. And what a horrible thing to do. How petty. But my anger issues, my lust issues, my control issues, my pleasure issues, my self-righteous issues, well, there's reasons I did those. Those can all be explained. But jealousy and gossip, that's pretty bad. We find things that really offend us that happen to be not the things we struggle with in order to minimize the offense of our own sin. We dismiss our sin as not sin. We minimize its severity. Or, and we're all good at this one, we hide and defend our sin. All of us have secret sin. Things that we do in private or even our, our thought life. It's why pretty much all of us probably have at least a friend or family or two where we'd say, I had no idea that he was, their life falls apart and we had no idea that they were doing these things. Why? Because just like us, they're good at hiding their sin. They just happen to get caught. And when we are caught, we defend, we make excuses, we blame others. The public figures are very good at this because they know that the real problem is the consequences for their sins. And so you'll see that in many of the excuses or the, the confessions of public figures when they're caught in something. It's not actually a confession for sin. It's a confession for the people who may have been hurt by my actions. And I regret the consequences. Well, of course you do. You've been caught. We're not very different. We hide. We defend. <laughs> Another way that we go about dealing with our sin is we try to fix it. Now this one, I'm pretty sure everyone in here has done, if you are religious. Religious people are very good at trying to fix their sin, and that's because religious people get it. There's no de denying sin. It's, I am guilty. I know I'm guilty. I feel guilty all the time. I know it's wrong. And so what we do in trying to fix our sin is we try to deal with the outside part of it. We confess our behavior. Lord, I lied this week. I cheated this week. I stole this week. Instead of digging down deeply to ask, 
Why did I lie? What's in my heart that made me cheat? When we simply confess our external behaviors, it's like doing physical therapy because you have neck pain when the problem is that you have cancer wrapped around your spine. You're dealing with the symptoms and not with the root of this disease. It's putting a bandage on a hole in your, in your chest because it's bleeding. Maybe you'll stop the blood, but the hole in your chest with the bullet inside is the problem. Sin is our condition. Our nature is fallen. There's always a deeper issue than the outward expressions of our sin nature. And it's why we need to ask, Lord, what is underneath? What causes me to go this direction? Why do I burst out in anger? What am I truly worshiping? We try to fix our sin because we want to become better people. And that's one of the ways we deal with our sin. We try to deal with our sin like we deal with love handles, with a little bit of discipline and exercise and eating well. And really what we're trying to do is get to that point in our life when our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. Some sense of, well, if I, if I could just get to the point where I stopped doing this one or two things as often as I do and started doing more good things, then my good outweigh my bad. And of course, that's Buddhism. That's not Christianity. It's a karmic way of thinking about the world. But listen to what Isaiah says about even our good deeds. He writes, And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Think about that for a minute. Even the very best things we do, our religious actions, our prayer, our charity work, our our caring for our neighbor, is like polluted garments. It's a very graphic, description of menstrual rats. He's saying, even the very best things we do are only worth being thrown away. How can he say that? Doesn't God want us to do good things? Well, he's getting at the root of the issue, which is not just our behavior, avoiding obvious sins or doing good external deeds. He's getting at our heart and our motives. And he's asking, why is it that we do good at all? Why might you do charity work? Well, because you're trying to get into college and you need it on your resume. Why do we do good things? Because we want to have a good reputation. Why do we do good things? Because we have some sense that God's going to bless us if we do them. And we have to ask the question even about our good deeds. Why do we do them? Is it actually for God? Or is it for myself? And a way to answer that one is is even asking another question related to our good deeds. If we're doing good deeds for the wrong reason, you can answer this one. What is your response when others succeed and your life stinks? When others are succeeding and your life stinks, if you're doing good for your own good, you will be angry at God. Why? Well, think about it. If she got married, got pregnant, has a great house, they have great jobs, and she's much worse than me, then where is God's fairness in that? Look at me. I'm a better person. I do more good. She is a mean, conniving person, and God seems to bless her. What's wrong with you, God? 
or I get angry at myself. I guess the reason why things are going so poorly in my life is probably because of something I've done. I know I'm wrong and I'm messed up and I deserve it. Instead of trying to fix our sin, we need to confess. Confess our bad deeds and the heart behind our bad deeds. Confess even the reasons why we do the good things we do. You see, in the end, the sin issue is not just an external actions issue. It's a God issue. Isaiah writes in verse 7, No one, no one calls upon your name. No one by nature calls upon your name, Lord. Sin is a relationship to God issue. It's an issue about who is actually Savior and Lord in my life. Am I trying to be my own savior by doing good deeds so that in the end God owes me? Or am I being Lord of my life saying, I can do whatever I want, I don't care what God says? Am I acting as savior and Lord of my life? Am I trying to live apart from God? So we dismiss, we minimize, we hide and defend, we try to fix, or some of us get to the point where we simply give up. We realize just how sinful we are that both externally and internally we are fallen and broken people. And we feel like what Paul writes in Romans 7, when he says, what I want to do, I do not do. The things I hate to do are the things I end up doing. The very things I want to do are the things I don't do. And he says, what a wretched man that I am. Who's going to rescue me? We give up. We can't seem to get out of this cycle of brokenness and sin. We forget the gospel. Don't forget the gospel. The gospel is actually good news for our sin issue. The gospel is what God does with our sin. Isaiah was looking for an answer, and the answer came 700 years later in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God's answer for our sin and the sin of the whole world. You see, on the cross is where God's holiness and justice and God's grace and mercy meet. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, He, God, the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The idea is that on the cross, all of our sin was laid on Christ, so that Jesus was considered as sinful as each of us. And the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. God Pulled back from his son. It's why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing the absence of his father. He's experiencing hell itself. The justice and wrath of God being given over to sin. So that we don't have to be. We need to remember the gospel and the promises of the gospel for those of us who are sinners. You see, Paul cries out in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death, from this sinful self that I am? He goes on in Romans 8 to say, But thanks be to God because of Jesus Christ. For in Christ there is now no condemnation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, If anyone is in Christ by faith, he is a new creation. The old sinful self is gone. The newly created eternal self has come. 
In Romans 6.23, we read, For the wage of sin, the payment for our sin is death, eternal death, wrath. But the gift of God in Jesus Christ is life, life eternal and life now. In 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why will God forgive us from all unrighteousness? Because Colossians 2.14 says, God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us for our sin. He canceled it by nailing it to the cross. All of our sin was nailed to the cross. And we get that hopeful gospel message in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What's the gospel way to deal with our sin? It's to realize that I am more sinful than I'm willing to admit. But also to realize that I'm more loved in Jesus Christ than I dare imagine. The gospel way to deal with our sin is to admit our guilt, all of it, and to believe in grace and the good news of Jesus Christ. You want to experience Advent now? Advent is come, Lord, come, when you come. You know, you can actually experience God's presence now. One of the primary ways I experience God's presence is actually in forgiveness and grace. Look, I'm not a super emotional guy, but the times in my life when I've been brought to tears before God, it's that sense of being loved by God in spite of being unlovable. In other words, I have to get the depth of my sin to get the depth of his love for me. And it's in that process of realizing how broken and sinful I am and how much he loves and embraces me through Jesus Christ that I usually experience God, his presence, his arrival, his coming. He is coming. He is coming to judge He is coming to vindicate his name. The Bible says one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Willingly or unwillingly, we will all bow before him when he comes. He is coming not only to judge, he is coming to save his people. And who are his people? Well, look, it's not those who have great behavior or religious attendance who go to church more than others, who give more than others when the basket comes around, who coach or mentor, or who don't lie, steal, or cheat. His people are not just people who behaviorally are good. It's those who desire and long for God more than for anything else. And it's those who acknowledge the depth of their sin, their need of grace, and that God alone is God. He is coming again to save his people. Who are his people? Any of us whose prayer is that Advent prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come. Because the world needs to be made right, so do we. Let's pray. God, most of us don't need a reminder that we are messed up, that we fall short. But most of us need to be reminded of the depth of our sin. That our problem is not behavior. It is worship. 
that we need to have you as Lord of our life. But help us to see that in you we have an answer of grace and mercy. That yes, we are sinful, but more so, Jesus has died for us. And so we can come to him and know that we are forgiven, accepted, loved. In him whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.